0: Um, if you've got your Bibles this morning, Mark chapter 5, I have to ask a question uh, by way of beginning. Um, it's going to probably show the, the age difference we're dealing with here. But how many of you um, are like really big Muppet fans? I don't mean the stuff that's come out in the last 20 years. I mean back when it was the Muppet show. How many? Very, very few, right? That's a shame. That's a shame, because um, if you're a fan of, of, of the Muppet Show at all, you'll know where this is going. It's, it's really good. It has nothing to do with the text, right? It's sheer coincidence, sheer coincidence, um, but we'll note it when we get there. A couple of quick notes. Um, again, we've been out of Mark's gospel for, for several weeks, so we're getting back into it. Um, we've said Mark is the gospel of action, focused on what Jesus did, um, more than what he said, um, or what he said as it became action, as it had immediate impact. And we sure saw that the last time we were in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, with the matter of Jesus calming the wind and the sea. And what an extraordinary multi-tiered miracle that was. Uh, and just in case you weren't here, because it is, it is so important to note that, you know, um, Jesus just like didn't say, you know, wind be still, and that was like it. You know, if you think at all about where wind comes from, the whole thing of this of our planet hanging in space and this massive solar plant the Sun just you know warming it pouring energy into the planet and that energy has to go someplace the planet seeks balance and the the wind blowing that's part of the planets attempt to balance that energy so when Jesus said like stop that was like a major energy traffic jam that you know just backing out know, traffic jam just backs up you know the traffic jam is there, but it backs up traffic off. That's like energy. That happened, and that's amazing. And then when the sea calmed, that was like a whole nother tear because, you know, again, that's the whole energy thing. The wind has loaded energy into the water, and the waves are the water's attempt to release that energy and come back to a place of harmony and balance. That takes time, even after the wind stops, right? And boom, when Jesus said, "Be that was it. So it's an amazing demonstration of Jesus' power over even the created order, which, of course, couldn't surprise us or shouldn't surprise us because it's his created order. He can do those things, right? So we've seen that. We've also seen through the first four chapters and now into chapter 5 increasing tension uh, as Jesus comes more and more into conflict with the religious authorities. The more they understand of him, the less they like him. The more they hear his message, the less they like it. So he's having to deal with that. And then, of course, there's a struggle that the, that the disciples had, this ongoing struggle, um, especially that moment when he calms the wind and the waves where they, they were more afraid of Jesus than they had been of the wind and the waves. They were overcome with a great fear, it said. And that's true sometimes as well. the the more we come to understand just who we deal with. Yes, there's a tremendous comfort in a God who loves us so, but the more we understand about the nearness of God, the more unnerving that can be, and it causes us to approach Him with a great humility and um, cry out, Lord, have mercy, on a a momentary basis. So with that in mind, we come to chapter 5, and this is one of those chapters in Scripture that if you like action, you like things that are happening, you're going to love this chapter because it's dedicated entirely to events. Miraculous events. Three major miraculous events that are demonstrations of Jesus just doing one powerful stuff. And we'll start with the first one. So chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, day and night, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gnashing himself with stones. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray, Father, as we look to it, we would receive the things that we need, Lord. Father, our our heart's desire is that Jesus' character be fully developed in us. We want to come to a full understanding of who our Savior is. And as that happens, Father, we might be better able to show Jesus, demonstrate his character to a hurting world around us. So we ask that, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. So the attention this morning is to first take like, just a few minutes, set the context, make sure that we're on the right page with Scripture. And the reason we do that, of course, is we've got a couple thousand years between us and the text. We've got a different language, different geography. We want to make sure we're seeing things correctly. So we'll do that first, then look at what happened, take a close look at exactly what happened, and then finally ask the question, how does that speak to us? What does it tell us of the character of Jesus and what does it tell us of what we want to see manifested in our own lives. So first of all, let's just take a moment to set the context. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, fairly small body of water, eight-mile trip. Um, but as small as the sea was, it was important because it divided the land between not just east and west, but Gentile and Jew. The, the one side of the sea... Primarily Jewish, the Western side, the side that Jesus and the disciples came from. The other side, primarily Gentile, right? other side of the sea is described as the area of the Gerasenes. Now, the pronunciation of that and the spelling of that is unclear. If you compare the accounts in Matthew and Luke, you'll note that. Uh, It's a classic example of where a name is translated from one language to another. Sometimes it gets a little bit mixed up. No real bearing on the meaning of the text, just you will notice some differences. Uh, The name means a people who have fled. and I can't give you any more than that. Um, I don't speak that language. So um, I'm on on the same page with you guys. I look it up and I say, okay, that's what it means. It means people who have fled. And what it tells us is that they're relatively new people to the area. It was an area called the Decapolis or Ten Cities. There was a semi-autonomous area the Romans had created um, of people that had been imported to the area. And that was extremely common in antiquity. When a conquering power would come in, uh, either a local population would flee Or sometimes if they didn't flee, the conquering power would collect them and send them someplace. So it was very common for people to be new to an area. The thing for us to note, though, is that there's a distinction between these Gentiles and the Samaritans who were farther south. And the reason that's important, the Samaritans would have had some idea about Jewish customs. They would have been fairly well acquainted, especially with the the first five books of the Old Testament, which they accepted. But, But folks farther north in this area... Would likely have had no understanding of what the Jewish people were all about other than what they picked up in day-by-day trade. So they're not a people well acquainted with Jewish customs, very much strangers, right? So that's the setting, right? And Let's follow the text, see what happens. And it's a really bittersweet, bittersweet account. It truly is. Uh, the first five verses we just read, Jesus and the disciples arrive, and they're immediately met by a man. Now, one thing I just should note in passing is when we talked about the whole wind and the wave thing, remember a bunch of little boats left with them? They're gone now. Right? The boat arrives alone. So whether they, hopefully not, were lost in the storm or whether once they figured where Jesus was going, that he wasn't just going down the shore a little ways, but actually crossing the sea, they thought better of it and went home. But they're all alone now. It's just Jesus and the disciples. Uh, They arrive on the eastern side of the sea, and they meet a man, and he's described this way as coming out of the tombs. He was a tomb dweller. He lived in the tombs. He had an unclean spirit, which we'll learn farther on. uh, is, is a demonic spirit. He was possessed of a demonic spirit. We'll talk a little bit about that terminology. He had been bound by chains which had failed to secure him. So he has developed this supernatural power beyond human power, not of himself, but of the the unclean spirit that indwells him, could not be bound by chains. And so he spent day and night crying out, deliberately harming himself, cutting himself with the stones. And, of course, in the process of breaking the chains and the shackles, would have been further injured, wounded. It's a really, really tragic pathetic sight. It's a human being really completely caught in the depths of suffering, right? Tragic. Verse 6, there's an encounter with Jesus. It says, seeing him from a distance, he ran up and bowed down. Now, one of the things that happens in verse 7 and goes all the way through 14, and if you read the passage, you're familiar, you, you know this, is that it gets really hard when you're reading this passage to track just who's speaking. Because you can't really tell whether it's the, it's the man that's speaking or the demonic forces, the demonic entities that are inside of him. Sometimes it's him, sometimes it's they, sometimes the him is the man. And if you, and if you try to figure it out, it gets really confusing. And I think that's kind of the point. When a human being has, has deteriorated to a place, a condition, that they're actually indwelt by, controlled by, overwhelmed by dark, evil, unclean, demonic spirits, the ability to distinguish between one and the other becomes almost impossible. And if any of you have had an experience like that, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's profoundly difficult to really know who you're talking with at any given moment. But here's the big thing Jesus knew. Throughout this encounter, Jesus knows exactly who he is dealing with, and he knows exactly what he is dealing with. And I don't believe it, that's really good news. It's good news for us to know that whatever situation, this is an extreme situation, but whatever situation in life we are countering, when we find ourselves confused, disoriented, not exactly knowing what's coming at us, we can know this, Jesus knows. He has perfect understanding of what we're dealing with. Okay. In Christ there is always clarity. Verse 7 uh, the man animated by the evil's demonic spirit so we're not sure just who's speaking except from the content of what is said what do I have to do with you Jesus son of the most high I implore you do not torment me. So not only does Jesus know who's who the unclean spirit knows who's who. There's no question about Jesus' identity in the person of the unclean spirit he is the son of the most high God and he literally begs Jesus not to torment him now Matthew in his account of this encounter, adds this. The demonic spirit said, do not torment me before the time. So word's already gotten out. There's a new sheriff in town. Word's already gotten out. The present economy is going to change drastically. In the incarnation of Christ, the clock starts ticking. And the ends of things, as we have known it, as humanity has known it, is near at hand. The end is in sight. The unclean spirit knows that and begs that he not be tormented. Now, exactly what they meant by that, we have no idea, but certainly the spirit did. Now, for some unknown reasons, reasons known only to the Lord, Jesus acquiesces to this unclean spirit, unusual request. There's a herd of pigs over there. Send me into the pigs. Don't know why Jesus let him do that. There's been lots of speculation. Um, But Jesus allows the demonic host to enter the pigs. And the pigs, as we all know, run down the bank, off the bank, and here is where we come to the Muppets. Right? You guys got it, right? Pigs in space. Now, if you're not a Muppet fan, you have no idea what that means. But if you are a Muppet fan, you just connected to the text really well. Okay, I had to say that. I've got to say it and go on. Demonic entities enter into the pigs, run down the bank, and are lost. A lot of questions as to why, a lot of speculation. Was it the fact that the pigs were unclean, therefore it's a Gentile area? What does Jesus care if there's pigs there or not, right? He's certainly got bigger things to deal with than that. He has an unclean human being, is a defiled, polluted human being. And whatever may be said about the pigs, this we know about the man. The man was delivered and freed. The man was delivered and free. Verse 14 is where it really gets to the bittersweet part. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. They find the man perfectly normal, healthy, and well. Now here's a key question. Who's the they? The same people that had chained him and bound him and put shackles on his wrists and ankles, those things had failed. They were not able to bind him. The demonic spirit was able to bind him. They were well aware of the power and the authority and the ability of the unclean spirits to bind a man they had no control over. They had failed completely. In any contest against the powers of the evil one and yet jesus proved even stronger jesus freed the man completely and the evidence of that the evidence of jesus undeniable power and authority is sitting right in front of them so how do they react to this manifestation of phenomenal power Verse 15, they see the man clothed in his right mind. Verse 16, just to make sure everything's clear, the story is repeated to them. The account is repeated. And then in verse 17, again, it's bittersweet. There's a a sweetness to the man's freedom. There's a sweetness to the power of Christ. But in verse 17, it turns bitter. They began to entreat him to depart from their region. The Son of God, the Savior of mankind, the supplier of everything they need, the one that was able to do what they had failed to do is standing right in front of him and their answer is to ask him to leave. Now, the usual explanation for this is that they were concerned about, you know, the loss of their livestock, the pigs. The text doesn't say that. That's kind of, though, the usual um, explanation. I'm not sure that's it. After all, the pigs are already gone. You know, I can do about them now, right? I think there's a better explanation and the text has already shown us Um, in Luke chapter 5 verse 8 after Jesus' miraculous provision of fish what did Peter say he fell to his knees and he said depart from me Lord I mean Jesus had just done the exact same Jesus had just done more than Peter could ever ask or think he just fulfilled Peter's wildest dreams a catch of fish so large that it wouldn't fill the boat any fisherman takes that deal right But what did Peter say to him? Peter fell to his knees and he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You may have just filled my boat with fish, but I want nothing to do with you because you are altogether holy and I am altogether unholy. It is deeply disturbing when we are conscious of our unholiness to come into the presence of one who is altogether holy It's a deep reflection of the world that we live in. Some will see what Jesus can do and rejoice because we have a reason to be confident, even comfortable in his presence. But the lost, the unsaved, those who only know of darkness, John put it this way, John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. One who has lived in darkness and become accustomed to the darkness is likely to find light. Very uncomfortable. Here's ago, I was writing with a friend. I may have, may have related this before, but I'm repeating myself. Forgive me. I was writing with a friend. We were living in Huna, trying to deal with somebody that had really been messed up in drugs and alcohol and had come out of it. And then after doing just great, boom, was right back in it. And I was dumbfounded. I, I did not know what to make of that. How anybody could come out of that darkness, walk in such incredible light, and then go right back. I just couldn't make sense of it. There was no explanation. And the person riding with me was one that had had a similar experience. And he was very helpful. He says, you know, Pastor, when you've been in darkness long enough, darkness becomes normal. As horrific as it may be, it's nonetheless normal. And walking in light, he said, can be deeply disturbing. And you'd be so lit, how, surprised how little it takes to make one turn away from that because of the very brilliance of the light in which we walk. We are surrounded by people and we wonder why they don't turn to the light. Well, the light can be terrifying. The light can be terrifying if it's not presented. The, the, the light which is the power and the authority and the might of our Savior being the very Son of God, that's a terrifying thing if it is not always linked to the compassion and the love and the very essential goodness of who he is. That's the only thing that makes his presence tolerable for us. Without that, we find ourselves just as Peter saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The people say, Please leave us. And Jesus clearly does. They go their separate ways. Bitter, sad, Tragic, and yet there's another sweet part. Verse 18, the man who formerly was possessed of the evil now wants to follow Jesus. Is that in him, he might accompany him. This is verse 18. He really wants to go with you. For reasons we don't know, Jesus doesn't let him. If I were to speculate, I would think, given the band of people he already had following him, adding a formerly demon-possessed Gentile to the group may have just been a little too much. But for whatever reason, that's wholly speculative. For whatever reason, Jesus says, no, you, verse 19, go off and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. And that is exactly what he does. Kind of odd to think, if you will, that as Jesus' ministry in, in Galilee continues, as he continues to preach and to teach, and as, as the gospel record moves along, all that time, simultaneously, there's a formerly demon-possessed guy up in the Decapolis preaching Jesus. And you have to wonder that after the book of Acts, when the apostles went out and they, and they spread the gospel, they got up north and the folks up there said, what are you telling us about? We already know this guy. We already know all about this Jesus. You never know how it works out when you tell people about Jesus. The results are glorious. You know, this week in Life Group, we were talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and how it was clearly connected in the events of Pentecost with outreach. Jesus coming to dwell in us by his spirit so that we would have power to witness, power to testify. And how that happened in Acts chapter 2, and yet it's not until Acts chapter 8 that the church actually did that. If you read the book of Acts, you know that. The Holy Spirit's poured out in chapter 2, and the disciples are empowered to take the gospel to the whole world, and they stay in Jerusalem. Kind of, you know, it's human nature, right? Where they understood, where they were comfortable. And they go all the way to chapter 8, And they haven't gone anywhere yet. I mean, they're just there. And in chapter 8, what happens? Great persecution breaks up. It's as if God gives them the boot. Time to go, right? Persecution happens. The disciples spread across the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, and the church expands incredibly, right? Great persecution and all were scattered. That's eight. But Jesus tells this guy, go and tell, and he just goes and tells. Simple as that doesn't waste any time. That speaks a lot to me about us. This whole event, first it tells us a lot about Jesus' character. Because, again, that's why we're reading this. You know, this is one of those events which, frankly, when you read it, it's really cool. I mean, this is a great story. you got to love this story, right? You've got pigs flying through the air, demonic being, you know, freed and made whole. The disciples going, what's going on? This is a great... But when you ask the question, why is this story here... What is it intended to do for us? That's a little more challenging, right? So we begin by asking, well, what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, first of all, it tells us about the universality of his power and authority. This guy's not a Jew. We're not inside Israel. We're completely outside the borders. And yet Jesus' power remains perfect. You know, if Jesus had said to the disciples, because remember, when they row up in the boat, the man immediately comes out of the tombs. You ever wonder why they landed at the tombs? Why did did they choose for a landing spot on the other side of the Sea of Galilee at the tombs, right? Jesus is looking for some peace and quiet. I mean, he's been totally hammered on the other side of the sea. Constant, nonstop ministry. They've got to get away. I know across the lake, eight miles away, there's the cemetery. Great place for some peace and quiet. But the minute he arrives there, this crazy guy comes out of the tomb, accidentally where it looks horrible. Would anybody have thought a thing about it if Jesus had said, tell you what, guys, let's aim a little, far, you know, a little farther down the beach. This isn't my problem. This guy's not a Jew. This isn't Israel. This is not my problem. And yet Jesus just hones right in on the guy. It tells us about his universality of his power and authority and the universal nature of his compassion. Jesus responds to a person with no evident reason other to respond other than he's a hurting human being. And that should be our goal. That should be our goal. This tells us the the qualities of Jesus' character we should desire to see expressed in us. Not only an expression of his power, but as an expression of his compassion. You know, one thing that's absent from the story that that we might naturally read into it if it was about us is Jesus never asked the question, how would you get in this messed up situation? You know, it's not, you encounter somebody with really serious problems, there's always that inclination to go, just what did you do to get yourself into this mess? Jesus just doesn't go there. The guy's got a problem, let's deal with it. Let's free this guy, demonic possession, Right? His character fashioned in us. You know, we know, if you're a believer, you can know without question, the Spirit of God dwells within you. That's the whole message of Pentecost. We don't come into relationship with Christ without the Holy Spirit. He is the, he, we're born again of the Spirit. He's the Spirit of regeneration. There, there's no being a Christian without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Right? We know the Spirit of power dwells within us. We are indeed the temple of the Holy Spirit. If Paul can say that of the Corinthians, he can say it of anybody. Anybody that knows Jesus, right? But that power and and authority functions through relationships, and that's where we get hung up a little bit sometimes. We kind of expect it to be automatic. It's not. The power and authority... That the spirit of God manifested through the Son of God always came through relationship. James four five is a verse of Scripture that sometimes creates a little bit of confusion. Uh, James writes this: "Do you not, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose?" "Quote: He jealously desires the spirit of God, which he has made to dwell in us." I don't know, but I, for a long time, I struggled. What is that even talking about? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Well, it sounds like he wants the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, but he's talking to people that are already Christians. So what's going on here? Well, it's, it's that word dwell. It's that word to make one's abode, to live in a place identify with its inhabitants. We all either you know know or perhaps better, maybe a little better know of someone who lives in a home where there's other people in the home, but they're not living together. They don't talk. They don't speak. They have the same mailing address. They maybe even take a meal or two together or eat out of the same fridge, but they're not not with anybody. There's a separation at home. We know what a tragedy that is, how painful that can be, how meaningless, void of relationship, that relationship, how frustrating that can be. The, the, The pain is, that's how a lot of Christians are in relationship with the Spirit of God. Yes, indwelt by the Spirit, Renewed by the Spirit, made new, but day to day, no communication. Day to day, no relationship, and then left wondering, wow, you don't see the spirit's power manifested in my life. The presence of the Holy Spirit, and I believe this is why we have this passage to show us something. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's a it's a presence by relationship as much as geography. And like any other relationship it has to be nourished. Like any other relationship, it has to be fed. So the question we're left with this morning is, how do we build that relationship? How do we strengthen that relationship? How do you and I strengthen our relationship with the Spirit of God? Well, I think, you know, there's a negative and a positive side to it. First of all, negatively, we want to avoid those things which are harmful to that relationship. You know, when we, um, as Christians, we deal with a sin or we struggle with a sin or we get caught in a sin, our first concern is always, you know, am I, is Jesus going to forgive me? Well, of course he is. The psalmist said, he counts not our sins. Right? Such a good thing to know that we're sin- our sins are not counted against us. We ask him for forgiveness and instantly they're gone. But do we think about our, our sins, our failures, in terms of our relationship with the Spirit? And I'll be very frank with you. Uh, there have been times that I've, you know, you do stupid stuff, and it's bad enough that you've done stupid stuff, but then you stop and think, what did I just drag the Holy Spirit through? You know, when, when we mess up, whatever the sin is, when we mess up, it's not as though the Holy Spirit steps away and says, you know, when you're done sinning, we'll talk again. No. When you're done with, when you're done with the sin, I'll come back and be, No. When we stumble and fall, we drag the Holy Spirit through it all. What amazing patience, mercy, and grace we are extended every day. I will tell you honestly, I don't know how the Holy Spirit does it, except that he is the Spirit of God. And the same mercy and grace that characterize the Father, that characterize the Son, characterize the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. So we need to be deliberate. The, the greatest, I think, loss that we experience when we fail to give our all to living a holy life. I, I, don't, I don't put effort in living a holy life so that you know, I'll win any points with God. We know that's a dead end. I don't make any effort into living a holy life so that I can be holy. Dead end. right? Doesn't work. My, my, my status as a holy one of God called the saint is simply because I am washed in the blood of the lamb and indwelt by his spirit. That's what makes me holy, right? So the, every ounce of energy I put into leading a holy life isn't for any of those things. I would really like to think that somehow I can make the Holy Spirit a little more comfortable living inside of John. Or at least make it at least uncomfortable. Does the Holy Spirit like being around us? Wow. We should be putting our absolute best foot forward, if no other reason from that, dealing with and addressing the issues of sin in our lives. The second thing is, are we giving the Holy Spirit something to work with in this relationship? I mean, if you did have somebody living in your home and you were in a relationship with that person and you wanted to be in a relationship with that person, a really good step is to invite them to the table at mealtime, right? Imagine living in a house and you know, the host you know, serves dinner and doesn't tell you it's dinner time. How do you feel, right? No. We need to do those things that nourish our relationship with the Spirit of God. And that is time in His Word. That is time in prayer. That is time in the fellowship of other believers that richness of our our joint dwelling by the Holy Spirit. I have to to think the Holy Spirit loves that. I have to think the Holy Spirit loves that. So one, the avoidance by by every ounce of effort we have of sin, and secondly, the doing of those things in His Word, in prayer, in fellowship, in service, in testimony, sharing our faith. I often wonder at the end of my day, and I've gone about all the stuff I do, And I I look back and I wonder, did I impact anybody's life today? Did I I do anything today that really impacted anybody? If the Holy Spirit's not asking, I was wondering the same thing. Like, why am I here? Does the Holy Spirit know why he's in your life? Are you engaged in such a way that at the end of the day, you can say to one another, hey, that was a good day. You got something done. Those are big topics, I know. They're challenging topics. But they're ones we need to ask ourselves. Because I want to see my life, accomplishing the kind of things I just read. Jesus said, greater things will you do. But that won't happen if we're not careful of the relationship we have with the Spirit of God. Father, I thank you, Lord. And, um, Lord, I read this and I'm going, "Whoa!" this is, um, my, my gut reaction, Father, when I read this passage is, um, I, I frankly, first of all, I, I react really well with, with the people that live in the Decapolis. Like, whoa, this is all like out, of my, out of my comfort zone. I don't like this. I would just assume soon not be a part of it. Okay, I get past that, Lord. And then I come to um, maybe the place of the disciples and I'm thinking, this is really wild when Jesus does this stuff. How do I process it, Lord? But I know the place you want us to be is to move past that to the place where Jesus was in this story. And we're not confused, Lord. We know he is, he is God, and we're not. We know that, Lord. But we also know that it is your intent, Father, that through us, your spirit will be manifest to a lost and dying world, Lord. That can only happen, Father, if we're doing the things to enhance the relationship we have with you, the spirit of God dwelling within us. Father, I pray you'd make us very careful to do that every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.